Amen. So I'm going to have you open up your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Can we get a shout out for Obadiah? Anybody? No? Now, if you have a, if you're using a device, a phone, or tablet, you'll get there quicker. Other people may not know where Obadiah might be because how often do you go to that one? It's a whole one chapter long, all 21 verses. It's nestled there right between Amos and Jonah. Might be a little more familiar with Jonah. So you can go to Jonah, flip back one book, and you're going to find yourself in Obadiah. So as you work your way there, I'm going to give us a little history lesson. So lovers of history, here we go. Uh, into the book of Obadiah and what it's all about. Uh, Obadiah was a uh, one-chapter book, prophecy, message from the Lord, given through a gentleman by the name of Obadiah. Now, there's 11 or 12 Obadiahs in Scripture. We don't know which one. And it really doesn't matter, because when it's a word from the Lord, it doesn't matter, right, who it is, that it comes from God. So it is a message prophecy to a group of people called the Edomites. Now, the Edomites have their history in one person, and his name was Esau. And if you're familiar with that name, we go back to Genesis chapter 25 to learn a little bit more about where the Edomites get their legacy from. Genesis 25, 23. Don't go there because you took all this time to find Obadiah. So stay there. Let me just let me read it for you. In Genesis 25, 23, God is speaking to Rebekah, married to Isaac, son of Abraham. And he says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So we're talking about twins, physical twins in the womb of Rebecca, and God defines them as two nations. And the older will serve the younger. So who's born first? Esau. Esau is born first and clutched to his ankle, to his heel, his brother, saying, I'm not far behind you. Jacob comes as well. And Jacob, we know, is going to be the, uh, the lion of Israel, will come from Jacob. And Esau is the descendant, or excuse me, the Edomites are the descendant of Esau. Now, if we know this story, Esau and Jacob have a little come to Jesus meeting together. As Esau is out in the field working, he's a, he's a, he's a working man, he's out of the field, he comes in, he's hot, he's tired, he's hungry, as we all get. And here is Jacob in the kitchen, cooking, learning uh, the lessons of life, maybe from mom, and, and he's making some sort of wonderful, amazing stew. And he comes in and says, I want some stew, I'm hungry. And Jacob says, sure thing, sell me your birthright. I mean, that's a relationship between brothers, right? I'll feed you. If you give me your inheritance, if you give me your promises given to you by our family line. But that's the way it went. And Esau, in all his pride and all his arrogance, said, I'll be agreeing with a birthright. What is that going to do for me? <laughs> and he says, I want stew. I'm hungry. So in a moment of hunger, he sells his birthright to his brother, and he goes on to live his life in all his pride, all his arrogance, everything that Esau is. And from that line come these people called the Edomites. And this is the message of Obadiah to the Edomites. And it was one commentator that said, the Edomites are Esau translated into national proportions. So if we understand who Esau is, we understand who the nation of Edom is. And this full chapter here is written to them. So they are the literal brother 
to the nation of Israel. And the beautiful thing is, well, not beautiful maybe, but in all of Scripture, what we read is there is no other nation mentioned more often as an adversary to Israel than Edom. Not counting of the big three. We'll take out the big three. Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. We know of them. We know their names. But you set them aside. Every other nation that comes against Israel in Scripture, no one is mentioned more than Edom. They don't like Israel. And you can see where that hatred and hostility comes from. So they've separated themselves, but that is kind of the short history. Uh, King David and King Solomon defeated the Edomites in their time. Uh, the Edomites led multiple other attacks against Israel through their history, but the prophecy becomes true in the year 70 when the Romans take over the world and defeat Edom, and they are no longer heard from in history again. And so that's what we're reading here, and this is the letter. We're only going to focus on two verses, so read them with me. Obadiah, the only chapter, verses 3 and 4, it says this. It's up on the screen if you want to follow along. Says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? In verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Powerful words. But what is it that we're talking about? So point number one, you have this in your little bulletin insert. The highest mountain you will ever climb is getting over yourself. How does that hit you? <laughs> so we're talking about mountain climbing now, right? Everybody has climbed a mountain. Everybody at some point in life has stood before this mountain of themselves and has gotten in their way. Because you can't get over yourself. We think we're the most important thing. And if, if I'm not raised up, if I'm not at the center of attention or whatever else, then I don't want anything to do with it. Or in other circumstances, maybe we've been hurt, maybe something's been said to us that has hurt our feelings, or, or maybe there's been something that's been done to us that has physically or emotionally harmed us, and what do we do? We immediately become the most excellent masons the world has ever seen, and we start building these emotional walls between us and everybody else. Because if I can protect myself, nobody can harm me. Nobody can get to me anymore. We run from the situation through those walls. But what is God speaking to us as he spoke to the Edomites in verse 3? The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who says in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Anybody ever said that? Nobody can hurt me. Nobody can harm me. I'm strong enough. I got it all together. Things are going well. I've got a good job, good family, wonderful kids. Finances are doing well. In fact, they're overflowing. I've got all the toys in the world. I've got no problems at all. Been there? <laughs> or maybe you're wanting to get there. I don't know. Your situation, that's for you to decide this morning between you and the Lord. But it is pride that is manifested in our heart first. And when it's pride manifested in our heart, that's what gives birth to our works. That's what gives birth to our actions and what separates us from God. Acting on our own, we build these emotional and mental uh, walls that we think are going to protect us from any form of attack. Who's lived the ostrich mentality? 
If I just put my head in the ground, if I don't see you, if I don't hear you, everything's good. No, it's not the way we're meant to live. In fact, as uh, Pastor Jay Vernon McGee, maybe you've heard that name before, said, pride of the heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. Maybe some of us in this room have already given our lives to the Lord. We've made that declaration. We love God. We had that mountaintop experience. We've come home from the tree. We're zealous in our new faith. Nothing can touch me until you wake up the next day and life happens. Or maybe you're not quite there yet. To say, I don't need God in my life. I don't need something I can't see, something I can't feel, can't touch. I don't know, what is it, a 2,000-year-old book? What's that going to do for me now in the 21st century when I got all my electronic devices and I'm connected to the end of the earth? I get all the information I need. I don't need to read a book. Pride. It gets every single one of us, no matter where you are, who you are, where you come from, it's going to creep in. Let's go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. What was it that deceived Adam and Eve? Satan? It was themselves. The pride that got manifested in their heart said, Satan, all he did was just offer something. But Adam and Eve had to take it. And they did, didn't they? Satan just simply said, did God really say you shouldn't eat this tree, you shouldn't eat this fruit? No, if you eat it, your eyes are going to be open. You can live like God. You don't need him. Go ahead. It's a piece of fruit. All he did was offer, but it was Adam and Eve that got deceived and accepted that offer and bit into the fruit and forfeited their promise, forfeited perfection and glory in the beautiful garden. Just like Esau, in one moment, forfeited his legacy, forfeited his right, forfeited the promises given to him because he wanted some stew. Have we ever, in a moment, given up so much because we just wanted to satisfy something right in the moment? Probably have before. So what is pride promising you? What is pride offering you today? What have you accepted? What have you allowed in? to take its root, to grow inside of you, that you are now blind and deaf to the world around you because you're so focused on looking in the mirror outside of, other than looking out the window. So just like the Edomites, their history, Esau separated himself from his family and separated himself from God. The Edomites and their geography, their physical geography, thought they had protection. In fact, if anybody's familiar with the ancient city of Petra, uh, the city built into the carved into the rocks, or if you're a, a movie buff, you've seen Indiana Jones Part Four. Okay, they find themselves at Petra, where the goblet or the, the, whatever it is they're looking for is there. And that's Petra. That is actually the city that belonged to the Edomites. That's where they lived, and it's separated geographically, but it's also protected within the mountains. You can't get to that city unless you go between this narrow uh, way. <laughs> and so they're protected from attack. They're, they thought they were untouchable. But they separated themselves from God. They separated themselves geographically from society. They separated themselves from community, thinking, oh, we can be self-sufficient. We don't need anybody else to help us out. And they were actually a nation that had perceived wisdom. People looked to them for their wisdom. But it was their own self-wisdom, separating themselves from a true knowledge of God. 
And that all led to the development and feeding of their pride and eventual downfall of the nation. But the Edomites exist today, don't they? They exist today in us. Have you allowed your personal family history to define and dictate who you're going to be? Just because maybe your parents or grandparents or whatever else were a certain way, that has to be who you are? Separated from God? Because of where you live, maybe you protected yourself and alienated yourself from living in community? Are you allowing yourself to try and live and succeed on your own smarts, your own knowledge, your own wisdom, separated from the true word of God? We have to ask ourselves these questions. We have to start to dig and open up our chest and reveal what it is that is keeping us from a deeper or intimate relationship with the Lord. Let's look at verse 4, Obadiah 1, verse 4. Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. No one is unseen, unknown, or untouchable in the eyes of God. The God who created this world, you think he can see everything? Absolutely he does. Now that can be a good thing. I want God to know who I am. I love it. But do I want God to know who I am? I may not want that. You know, you can kind of ask it both ways, right? It's a good thing. My God, my love, the the God who sacrificed his son for me, but also he knows everything about me. And that can be scary until we allow ourselves to be revealed, until we allow ourselves to come before our God on our knees saying, I want you to know me because it is in you that I will find my hope, my strength, my power, my everything is when we can allow ourselves, but it's getting to that point that hinders us. Remember what Jesus told us in Luke 12, verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. God knows everything on your heart. Whether you speak it, reveal it or not, you will stand before God one day, and you will have to answer for the life that you lived. But I love how God answers their question in verse from verse 3. The, the Edomites are saying, Who will bring me down to the ground? I soar like an eagle. I'm protected. I know all. I'm good. And God just simply says, I will. I will bring you down. You cannot hide from me. And then declares in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Been there? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand right now. <laughs> a beautiful follow-up to that is Proverbs uh, chapter 29, verse 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I love that paradox of that wording. We're going to talk about more uh, of the other paradoxes in Scripture later on, but when we're low, that's when God lifts us up. Think of Peter. Started to sink, didn't he? God said, here, let me lift you up. That's what we have to do. You know, there was a, there was a time, uh, before I got into full-time ministry, I was in education. I was a teacher and a, an administrator, spent some time on the football field as a coach. But it was after 10 years of being in the classroom as a teacher, I taught history and, and across kind of the curriculum of social sciences. And I got to the point where I said, I'm going to move my career forward. I'm going to climb the ladder of educational success. And I was given my opportunity back in 2008 to become the highly exalted junior high principal. Please don't. (laughs) It really isn't. If you were junior high principal, I love you. You are awesome. 
continue to do what you do, but for me, in my life, I thought I was being elevated, so I was going to go into Christian education. That's where God brought me. <laughs> See where we're going to go with the story here? In Christian education, I had all this pride built up inside me that said, I am going to change the world. I am going to renew everything about Christian education from here across the planet, and they will thank me and praise me because I became a junior high principal. Now, I know it's funny, but I said some of those things in my heart. And here's the beautiful thing of what happened. Going in in a Christian school, as a Christian, a Christian junior high principal, had to have my first meeting. So I stood up in front of my whole staff, all the teachers, staff, everybody, because before the students came, we started the new school year, I had to bring everybody together, do everything we needed to do. And the first thing, of course, in a Christian school, you have to pray, have some devotion. Of course, that's the right thing to do. So in all my pride and arrogance, I stood up, was going to give my devotional time, but needed to open in prayer, as we're supposed to do. So I knew in my heart, I needed to pray for them. I was good. I had it all together. I was ready to go. But I knew my staff needed prayer. So I bowed my head and said, Jesus, we thank you for a new year. We thank you that we can begin this new year and bless these kids that you're going to bring to us. Because, Lord, we need your help. There isn't anything that we can do, Father, apart from you. We need your help. And that sounded like a great prayer, didn't it? But where was I at in my heart? And it was in that moment God broke me. Before my entire staff, I'm not kidding you, I literally, the moment I said, God, we need you, I literally started to weep. I cried. And I didn't know why. It scared the heck out of me. I'm literally on my knees crying, like, like a <laughs> kind of cry, like I couldn't get anything out. It wasn't this beautiful Hollywood moment where I had a single tear down my cheek, like I had all this compassion. No, it was ugly, nasty, weeping crying. I couldn't speak because in my heart I had this pride. I had this arrogance. I had this ego that I was going to come in and change the world, but God used my own prayer and all my arrogance to speak the words, we can't do anything without you. And it took me a long time to figure out why I just broke down like a baby, started crying in front of all these adult people and looking at me going, the heck is wrong with you? I couldn't finish the meeting. I couldn't. But it was in that moment, because I had so much pride, God said, okay, let's let you fall a little bit right now. And, but it got me to a place where I then truly had to be dependent upon the Lord as the leader in the school and these kids and these families to trust in Him, not in my own knowledge or understanding. So I'm going to ask you, we're going to move on, and we're going to look at a different kind of eagle. We saw the eagle of Obadiah. Now turn over to Isaiah and go to chapter 40, a verse we're probably a little more familiar with. We're going to read verses 30 and 31 in Isaiah chapter 40. And if you want to just read along, it's up on the screen there. Verse 30 says, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now I want to take a quick moment and just go back to verses 27 and tw uh, through 29, right before them. We'll come back to verses 30 and 31. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? 
Have we not ever been at that point where we look and we just wonder all this stuff that's going on in our life? God, where are you? Don't you see me in my distress? Believe it or not, that in itself is a prideful statement to make. If we're recognizing the God of this world and then cry out to him, where are you? Don't you see me? We're kind of elevating ourselves to a position we need not be in. But we say that sometimes. God, what about me? What's going on in my life? What are you doing to me? Don't you understand? And he simply, through Isaiah, says these beautiful words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. What a beautiful answer to our lowest needs. <laughs> where are you, God? I made the world. I think I know where you're at. We can't possibly know everything about God. The beautiful thing is he knows everything about us. He knows we're capable, and he still loves us. I'm going to tell you a very quick story because it was so funny. My wife and I were driving to a banquet last night, and we had this beautiful light that came on in our car, a check engine light. I'm like, oh, awesome, great. Let's keep plugging away. And then not long after, as we're getting off the freeway, another light comes on, the low tire pressure light. We're like, oh, fantastic. This is great. Our car's breaking down before us. But my wife and I, we started to have this conversation where it's kind of a moment that was revealing to us, like, isn't that kind of like the Lord? He, he's driving us along, we rest in him, and then we kind of turn these lights on in our life, and he looks at us and goes, what are you doing? What? But he keeps driving. He loves us. But it was just one of those moments where, like, we get to the, we, we need our engine checked. Our, our tire pressure is low. We're hurting. And sometimes I just kind of get that vision, and God goes, why do you keep turning that light on? I'm right here. I'm driving. Let me continue to move and push, push you forward. I love his promise in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. And if you read verse 10, it says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's when we can boast. That's when we can say it. Because there is nothing about me. God, I'm relying on you. God, I need your strength. I can't move forward. I've got a flat tire. My engine is fuming, smoking, done, leaking. I need you to help me out. Would you please do that now? And that's when God says, yes, absolutely. Let's go back to verses 30 and 31 of Isaiah 40. Even you shall faint and be weary. This is the beautiful thing. No matter where we're at in life. It's talking about these young men. So some of us that are maybe a little more seasoned, I think was the word used last uh, last service, which is great because I didn't want to try and come up with a different word. I didn't want to offend anybody. But there's some of us in the room here that are maybe a little more seasoned in life. You've got wonderful experiences. Everything that you've gone through in life it, 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 that God has given you and things that he's gotten you through, you've, you've kind of banked this emotional and mental and spiritual strength and power within you that says, I've gone through so much, let me help. But yet, do you not grow tired and weary? But what he's saying is there's even the youth, the strong, the young, okay, that are in their prime of life, the strength to conquer the world as I thought I did as a junior high principal. I was fairly young at that point. But I was tired. I felt exhausted. 
So no matter where we're at in life, God says, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. But that's when you look to me. That's when you rest in my promises. So regardless of physical, emotional, or mental strength, no matter where we're at, because of life, we have to lean on the Lord. Scripture tells us to look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we get back into Scripture and we retire, we're worn out, we're exhausted, that's when God says, open up and look at the life of Jesus. Look at my son. Look what he went through. Look what he did for you. Look how he answered his, the, the, the adversaries in his life. So that we don't get tired or weary because he did it for us. He was ripped apart for us. He left glory and came down so that you don't have to worry and get tired and get exhausted. Now it happens, we get there, but he's saying, look to me and I will renew you. I will give you strength. I will lift you up. Let me do that for you. That was the whole purpose of this book. Lean on me. Rest in me. Verse 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the faith, hope, trust, and love that we need to have in Christ. Now it says to wait for the Lord. Do we stop? Does family stop? Does your job stop? Do the bills stop coming? Unfortunately, no. Life moves on, so we can't just stop. We keep moving forward, but we have to get to a point where we slow down enough and back up enough so that we can put Christ in front of us so that when we continue to move forward, our eyes are fixed on him. Everything that we do, everything, everywhere that we go, our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ because he is the example. He is our rest. He is our hope. But I love the imagery in this, that there's, there's flying, and there's running, and there's walking. Which one do we choose? I don't want to sprint. I'm a little more seasoned in life. I can't run. Maybe you need to walk. That's okay. I don't know how to fly. That's okay. But here's the point. Pride says, I'm going to do it myself. But God says, no, I'm going to do it for you. Pride keeps you from flying. Pride keeps you from resting in, in Christ because you don't believe you need God's strength or that you don't need to be renewed. But God says, I have a desire to lift you up and raise you above all the mess, all the stuff you thought was important, all the stuff that you put so much emphasis and undue attention on. He says, that's not important. Let me lift you up and let me let you fly. Pride keeps you from running the race because you prioritize your own life's goals and ambitions before your obedience to God. Hebrews 12, 1, we're supposed to run. We lay aside every weight, pride, and sin, pride, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're supposed to run, but it's a marathon, isn't it? How many of you can run a marathon? <laughs> I'm sorry. Every hand should go up because every single one of you has the capability to run a marathon. But you may choose not to because those people are crazy. But you have the ability to. But what do you have to put into it? <laughs> Effort, work, training, blood, sweat, and tears. But God calls us to run a race. You are meant to run. 
but you train for it. You get prepared for it and build yourself up in the strength of God's might and endurance. That's what gets you through. But pride keeps you from even walking, doesn't it? Because you think you have a better way. Jesus made it very clear. Uh -uh. I am the way. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. One of my favorite verses, 1 John 2, verse 6. Whoever says they abide in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. So it begs the question, how did Jesus walk? In love, in humility, in service, in sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So, ladies and gentlemen, we need to learn to fly before we can walk. But that means we need to humble ourselves and come before the Lord and rest in Him. Let Him lift us up to fly and be renewed and get strength so He can set us down to run this race and walk in Him. Point number two. What allows us to fall into God's loving protection, provision, and promise? Humility. If you want to open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, or it's up on the screen, what's the first word? Say it, church. Humble. Say it again. Humble. One more time. Humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You hear that? We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he can lift you up. That's one of those paradoxes in, in Scripture that we love to, to lean on. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So one more question. How do you humble yourself? Go to sleep, pray, Lord, humble me. Wake up and you're good? No. I wish it was that easy. But don't forget that when you pray for certain things, God gives you certain things to make that true, doesn't he? So if you ask for humility, he's going to put you in situations that's going to test your pride, your arrogance. But what does scripture say? Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll add everything else unto you. Philippians 4, verse 6, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Are you hearing the action, church? Are you hearing the verbiage that we need to put into this? We need to cast our burdens on the Lord, which means I can't carry this. I need you to carry it for me, God. That takes humility. When we seek him Excuse me, when we seek him first, it means I can't lead the pack. I'm not smart enough, good enough, strong enough, have enough endurance to lead the way. Jesus, I need you to lead. I'm going to follow. I'm going to be a disciple. Please go in front of me. And when we pray and give our request, make our request known to God, it means, God, I don't know all the answers. I need you to help me. But whether we cast, whether we seek, whether we pray, we're asking for help. And then what does 1 Peter 5 verse 8 say? Watchful. Watch out. Because when you humble yourself before the Lord, that's when the devil is seeking to devour you and bring you down again. But here's the beauty. We looked at two different eagles, didn't we? Let's look at two different lions. We've seen this one. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, gives us a different picture of a different lion. And that's point number three. We need to 
excuse me, pride is defeated when we learn to live in the paradoxes of life. So a paradox is a contradictory statement that brings out some truth, right? So Revelation 5.5 says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. We're also told in John 10.10, The 10, thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Amen indeed. Our Messiah, our Savior, even the title of lion. John looks up and says, hey, take part. You don't need to weep anymore, John. Look, look up. There's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John lifts his eyes, what does he see? He sees the Lamb of God. Look at Revelation 5.5, guys. It's beautiful. He's described as the lion of Judah. But when he turns his eyes to Jesus, he sees the lamb that is bearing the marks of the sacrifice that he gave for us. Well, it's a paradox. How can a lamb be a lion? How can a, it doesn't go together, Right? Well, absolutely it does, because Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lion, has the power and majesty and is described as the King of Kings. And yet, as a Lamb, He is humble, He is gentle, and provided us that sacrificial love by giving of Himself. When we give ourselves completely over to Jesus Christ, when we die to ourselves, it is He that gives us life. Hear the paradox? When we die to ourselves, it is He that gives us life. When we can admit and declare there is nothing, 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 nothing about ourselves that is good enough, it is He that desires to give us everything. Paradox. Can we live in weakness? Can we live in nothing? Can we live in a lowly state? That's what we're called to do. So that Christ can be revealed in us. It is he that lifts us up when we're low. It is he that gives us strength when we are weak. It is he that will bless us with all the riches of heaven when we are poor in spirit. It is he that will provide us victory over defeat and ultimately life over death. But we have to give up ourselves. We have to get over ourselves, And we have to give ourselves completely, wholeheartedly, all the way, 100%, to Jesus Christ and his lordship over our life. Are you willing to do that? We can say yes, but are you willing to give yourself fully to the Lord and be dependent on him? Because I tell you what, I've seen it in my life, I'm sure others here have as well, that when you get to that point and you have nothing or nothing, and nobody's giving you glory here, Christ reveals himself. God provides. And it's a beautiful place to be in. But it's so contradictory to what the world says, right? Make your money, have success, do everything that you need to do, no matter what, no matter who gets in the way, you take care of you. That's what society says. But when we live in the paradox of life, the paradox of, of biblical scripture, truth, and promises, we don't need to attain everything because everything's already been given to us. It's waiting for us.